0: Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon, thank you. I'm Richard Gallagher, I'm the 2006 Chair of the International Law Section of the Dallas Bar Association. I'd like to welcome all of you, in particular, Senator John Cornyn and the other sponsors of this event, uh, co-sponsors of this event, the Fragman Law Firm and the World Affairs Council of Dallas and Fort Worth. So we've got a very exciting luncheon today. I would like to make one introduction of Mark Sales, who is the 2006 president of the Dallas Bar Association. Great, and I have two, um, two small points of international law section business that I'd like to toss out. One is I would like to thank Asina Inu, who has represented this section, and all her hard work in coordinating with the other co-sponsors. Thank you, Asina. Okay. And the other point of uh, housekeeping is that tomorrow the international section has another Uh, Bang up event. We have a sitting Supreme Court Justice from Israel who's also the former Attorney General of Israel who will grace us tomorrow at lunch, and we're going to have another outstanding turnout. And I'd like to thank all of you individually and collectively for coming here and making this such a great event. Now I'm going to introduce Jim Falk, who is the President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas and Fort Worth. Welcome, Jim.
1: Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here on behalf of the World Affairs Council. Thank you very much, Dallas Bar Association. We have been looking forward to this day because there is certainly should be a strong symbiotic relationship between our two organizations. Uh, Tim Powers is a member of our board. I know that from time to time he has sent out letters to uh, many members of the international legal section, and we we really hope that you'll become involved. And I've just been talking with the director of the Dallas Bar Association, and we're going to get together soon and, and really look about how we can do more programs together over the course of the next several months. Let me just underscore what Richard said. There are some incredible things happening this week in Dallas-Fort Worth. You mentioned the program tomorrow with Eli Rubenstein, the uh, um, former uh, Supreme Court Justice or former Attorney General of Israel. His topic is so key, liberty versus security, and I encourage you, if you have not yet registered, don't just show up tomorrow. Do the uh, staff a favor here at the Dallas Bar Association, jump on their website and sign up and then come tomorrow and you'll have a reservation, but that's a program you won't want to miss. We're also at the World Affairs Council going to have a tremendous program later in the week with Jack Matlock, who was the last U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union. And in fact, as our members have heard me say, Jack Matlock on the day of the major summit between Gorbachev and Reagan was in that uh, villa-owned mansion on the lake in Geneva, owned by the Aga Khan, speaking Russian in front of Reagan so that he would get used to the simultaneous interpretation that was going on. So Jack Matlock has lots of stories to tell behind the scenes at the end of the Cold War. In your program, you'll, in, on your seat, you'll see lots of programs that are taking place at the World Affairs Council. One that is not listed because it's breaking news is uh, the author of Cobra II, who has been on practically every talk show. The, uh, Michael Gordon, who is the chief military correspondent for the New York Times. He'll be our speaker on April 4th. And then on May 5th, we have a speaker, and it's a way to find out really how old you are. Because if you say bono, you're over 40. If you say Bono, you have a teenager in your household who has told you. Uh, you know, this was my staff. For weeks I was saying, you know, we're really close to getting Bono. And then they'd go into the room and in the workroom and just laugh at me. And finally, I think it was an intern who said, Mr. Falk, you know, I don't want you to be embarrassed anymore. But anyway, Bono on May 5th, so we'll hope you be there. Uh, really want to uh, thank... Uh, Fragman's uh, law firm. Hasina, you've been pushing us to do this, giving us the guidance, and we're very, very thankful. Immigration, of course, is a critical issue facing our policymakers, our government officials. I cannot tell you the number of calls I've gotten from our member senator asking, you've had Kay Bailey Hutchison. When are you getting Senator John Cornyn? So thank you very much for accepting our invitation. Uh, Just today, the New York Times carried a full-page advertisement uh, from the government of Mexico concerning their views. Uh, it is an issue that is being, will, will certainly shape the debate in the 2006 election, so we're very pleased to have someone who is really leading the effort for U.S. policy to speak with us. Enjoy your lunch. Uh, I'll be back shortly to introduce our, our sponsor, the, the principal uh, partner of Pragman, Austin Pragman. Thank you very much for being with us. It's now my pleasure to introduce our lead underwriter, Austin Fragomen, who is chairman of the firm's executive committee. Austin flew in yesterday from New York, and we're very grateful for you making that trip. Uh, wish you had left the rain in New York, but uh, you brought the sun this morning, so we, we, we thank you for that. Uh, Austin heads the firm's international practice. Um, Obviously, he's watching the NCAA games because he received his B.A. from Georgetown and then later a law degree from Case Western Reserve University. He quickly got focused on immigration, serving as staff counsel in the U.S. House of Representatives on the Subcommittee on Immigration, Citizenship, and International Law. He is considered one of our nation's foremost authorities on immigration law. And I think he's also someone who doesn't know how to say no. When I started going through his CV, I noticed all the volunteer assignments that he has accepted. But let me just point out a few of them. Chairman of the board of the Center for Migration Studies. He also sits on the editorial board of the International Migration Review. And as I said, the list goes on and on. He's also giving back to education. He's the adjunct professor of law at New York University and has written a number of books on this important field that we're going to discuss today. Please welcome our sponsor, Austin Pragman.
0: Thank
2: you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, well, thank you very much for um, having me here today, and. Um, My pleasure to be in Texas, and I want to assure you that um, that the rain didn't come from New York, just to just get that straight. Uh, now, I'm, I'm pleased to uh, address this distinguished group and particularly to have the privilege of introducing uh, Senator John Cornyn, but first I've been asked to make a few comments, and if I explained to John Cornyn um, what I'd like to do is to talk about a few of the issues in the broader social policy perspective, and then um, he, in turn, can um, explain to us um, how the legislative process will solve it. So, and, and I would also like to point out, um, for for uh, for just the interest of the audience, this is a organization that's interested in um, global affairs, is the issues we're going to talk about today, the primary issues, things like temporary work permits. Um, large numbers of undocumented aliens, etc. These are these are universal problems in virtually all Western nations and all in highly industrialized countries. Because, as you can well imagine, um, advanced economies attract workers from around the world, and so these these issues are, um, uh, that we're going through in our in our current debate are issues that are shared by um, a number of countries. In the United States, our comprehensive immigration reform um, is essential and long overdue. We had, in 1986, the Immigration Reform and Control Act that dealt with employer sanctions and legalization. And then in 1990, we had a a law we refer to IMAC 90, um, which um, actually (coughs) refined the temporary worker categories as well as the uh, permanent residence uh, process. That's really been the uh, last major legislation there's been um, on this important issue. And, of course, if we were to take the issues and and, and divide them up or or segregate them, um, the most important issue, of course, is illegal migration. Um, And the reason it's the most important issue is because the current system is broken. We have some 11 million um, undocumented workers or undocumented aliens in the United States and legal immigra- illegal migration um, is, is very bad for society in that it erodes public confidence in legal immigration. It encourages crime and actually creates um, certain types of crime, such as alien smuggling, document fraud, um, exploitation, human trafficking, it gives rise to vigilantism, which is um, never uh, desirable in a society. And, it, and it, uh, finally, it exposes the illegal migrant to great risk and hardship, uh, which results in quite a number of uh, deaths every year. Um, so that's the first issue um, that, that needs to be addressed. Um, the, next, the next issue and the one that, um, the one that uh, we get most involved in um, on our, in our daily practice are reform of the business uh, immigration process. And essentially, what we're dealing with here is taking a look at facilitating mobility of global human resources in ensuring that companies have access to highly educated and skilled workers. The laws must recognize the global competition for the brightest and the best by giving U.S. employers, universities, research centers, global businesses an opportunity to, and to um, attract and retain top talent. Um, for instance, uh, foreign students graduating from U.S. universities with advanced degrees in areas such as math, science, engineering, and technology should have immigration incentives through their U.S. employment um, to encourage them to make their careers in the United States. I mean, we've had a, a, a major investment. Um, in in a student and sending them through the educational program. And as you all know, in advanced levels in education, it's really subsidized, um, regardless of whether the uh, foreign student pays tuition. U.S. companies should have access to sufficient workers um, who are highly educated in specialty occupations to provide the intellectual capital for the high-tech and burgeoning professional service industries. Um, and here, of course, we're, we're taking a look at the H-1B visas, which you've, um, I'm sure, all heard a lot about. Uh, there must be uh, enough numbers available to allow essential workers um, who are uh, important and essential to a particular company to become a permanent residents in the United States without long delays. And I'll just mention one more issue, which is the most controversial, and that's what to do with these 11 million undocumented aliens. Fact it's so controversial that even within the Republican Party, um, there's a wide divergence of opinion. With some um, Senate Republicans favoring a learned, a, a earned legalization program earned through um, paying fines, showing that you've been persons pay taxes and um, that you've been employed in the United States, while there are a large group of House Republicans as well as Senate Republicans who oppose any type of uh, amnesty. Um, So, today, we're fortunate to uh, have with us um, one of the key figures um, in this historic debate. Uh, Senator John Cornyn serves in the important position as chairman of the Subcommittee on Immigration, Border Security, and Citizenship. He's been a leading voice in seeking comprehensive immigration reform built upon border security and strengthened enforcement. Senator Cornyn has been an outspoken leader um, on many issues. Um, He's been a prominent supporter of President Bush nominees um, on the Judiciary Committee, and he looks out for the interests of uh, Texas um, through military, national defense, and through his work on the Armed Services Committee. At the same time, Senator Cornyn uh, stands as a defender of free markets, traditional values, and individual liberties. Just a little personal note, Senator Cornyn was born in Houston, raised in San Antonio, where he graduated from Trinity University and St. Mary's Law School. He served for six years as a district court judge in San Antonio before he was elected to the Texas Supreme Court in 1990. In 1998, John Cornyn made history by becoming the first Republican attorney general elected in Texas since Reconstruction. Uh, Senator Cornyn is married to um, his wife, Sandy, who is with him today. Welcome. Um, who, to whom he's been married for 26 years. He has two daughters. Uh, please join me in welcoming Senator Cornyn.
3: Austin, awesome. thank you for that uh, nice introduction, and thank you for your uh, contribution to this uh, important debate. And uh, Sandy and I are delighted to be here with you today back in Dallas to talk about one of the toughest issues that confronts our nation. Like most of the tough issues in our country, immigration really addresses a, a conflict between American values. On one hand, we are a nation of immigrants. If we were to go around this room, uh, all of us, perhaps somewhere in our family tree, uh, unless you're a Native American, would have some story to tell about how your ancestor pulled up their roots in their home country, uh, perhaps at great risk, even to their life, uh, came to America, because America represents, represents that great beacon of hope and opportunity, and our country is really the the one country in the world, I believe, where no matter who you are, how you pronounce your last name, uh, what your country of origin might be, what piece of geography you happen to be born on, uh, you can come to the United States and become an American, because being an American really represents an idea, or perhaps better stated, an ideal. So we are proud to be a nation of immigrants and we have enormously benefited from the fact that people since the beginning of this country have left their homes and come here. And obviously there's been a certain element of self-selection and we have benefited really from the smartest, the uh, biggest risk takers. Uh, the ones who uh, were willing to work hard and have invested so much in this country and which have made us really the envy of the world. That's one value. The other value that uh, represents the clash that presents us with the problem we have today is that we also fancy ourselves as a nation of laws. And indeed, we talk about this when we go, uh, when the President talks about what we're doing in the Middle East, uh, when we go to countries like Mexico or around the world and talk about private property rights and individual liberty and respect for the rule of law. Uh, We're very proud of our reputation as a nation of laws. But we can't look ourselves in the mirror, honestly, and lay claim to that legacy, when we tolerate such rampant lawlessness within our, order, within our borders as exists today when it comes to immigration. Now, I'm always, I always interject whenever I talk about immigration reform to point out I've only been in the United States Senate for three years because I'm eager for people to understand that I want to be part of the solution and hopefully not be part of the, part of the problem. But the fact is, uh, as Austin mentioned, uh, it was 1986 when Ronald Reagan, the father of modern conservative politics, signed an amnesty bill which uh, legalized about three million illegal immigrants in the United States. The trade-off for that was that we were going to have meaningful employer sanctions for those who hired outside of legal routes. Uh, to fulfill the needs of our economy and and their workforce. The fundamental failure of that policy was that the United States government did not provide the means by which employers could determine the eligibility of prospective employees. And so what happened, we got 3 million new Americans, and what the American people were told was the quid pro quo for that, simply did not come to pass. I remember growing up, my dad was always a big uh, big fan of different aphorisms or different sayings, one of which I'm reminded of in this context. He said, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I think that perhaps addresses some of the skepticism that some people across America have when it comes to the federal government's bona fides uh, to deal with this issue because they believe that this is going to be another trick or perhaps shell game when it comes to dealing with what people recognize is a serious problem and distinguishing between um, individuals who who follow the rules and come to the United States through a legal route and those who simply cut in line and come here for understandable reasons but in a way that is inconsistent with our values as a nation that believes in the rule of law. Well, we, uh, we have a tremendous challenge to, uh, to fix this broken system. And uh, I might mention to you sort of where we are in terms of the process, because the process is important. Senator John Kyle and I of Arizona, uh, of Arizona and I, have sponsored one of the major pieces of immigration reform legislation which we believe addresses this issue comprehensively. It's called the Comprehensive Immigration uh, Border Security and Immigration Reform Act of 2005. Another prominent piece of legislation is that authored by uh, Senator John McCain and Senator Teddy Kennedy uh, that uh, they have also offered for the Congress's consideration. And there are a few other miscellaneous bills, but I guess the most important other piece of legislation would be what came out of the House in December, the House of Representatives. And uh, what the House produced is a bill which is very strong on enforcement, uh, is some say uh, harsh when it comes to uh, punishing violations of the law, but which does not deal in any manner with the Ten or 11 million people who are currently here living in the shadows, nor does it deal with the very real need that this robust American economy has for a workforce, for jobs that in many instances American citizens are simply no longer interested in performing. And I can only think about uh, my children, our children, who are 23 and 24, and, you know, I guess uh, we are... We are the beneficiaries of this huge prosperity, but uh, what happens is I think we see our, our own children and perhaps grandchildren who are no longer interested in performing those entry-level jobs in our economy, unskilled, low-wage jobs. And so what happens is the immigrant workforce, and in this case many times the illegal immigrant workforce, says, I'm willing to do those jobs, and so they thereby... Put their, first, put their hand on the first rung of that ladder, um, working their way up the ladder till they are able to achieve their own dreams when it comes to their ability to provide for themselves and their family. So we have a real quandary here when it comes to how do we deal with this, both from a security standpoint and from an economic standpoint. The House has one proposal which does not deal with the economic aspects of it at all, And I believe our challenge in the Senate, and I do believe we will meet that challenge, is to come up with some consensus on how we can deal with both the security issues and the economic issues as well. March the 27th, a week from, uh, I guess week from today, um, this issue will hit the floor of the United States Senate. In the meantime, uh, the Judiciary Committee of the Senate has been trying to mark up or uh, write a bill out of the committee Uh, that will gain support among a majority of the committee and then form the basis for the floor debate in the Senate. Uh, We may or may not meet that deadline, and if we don't, then the majority leader has said that he has some legislation, which will be primarily a border security and enforcement bill that will then be amended on the floor. And after two weeks, the hope is that we will have a bill uh, that can then be uh, Negotiated in conference with the House to try to bridge the gaps, and have legislation then that will pass both houses of Congress and will go to the president's desk for signature uh, sometime later uh, this spring, uh, maybe summer, um, maybe later. But uh, that's the hope. Well, why is it that, America, that the American people have now seen this issue go from perhaps uh, a low, a matter of low public interest, to the top of Um, most polls when it comes to America's domestic concerns. I believe that it's the uh, effect of September the 11th, 2001, and it's also the fact that um, Mexico has become a transit point for international human smuggling. And what I hear from many of my constituents in South Texas, the Rio Grande Valley, El Paso, People you would think would be the most sympathetic to the fact that people want to come here because they have no hope and no opportunity where they live, and they tell me they're scared. They're scared of the changing nature of the illegal immigrant coming across the border because they could be from any country in the world. They could be a member of a violent Central American gang like MS-13, Uh, They could be from countries of special interest in the Middle East, or they could be, for example, as the Secretary of Department of Homeland Security told me the other day, we have 39,000 Chinese who've come into our country and been detained, but have been part of what has been a broken system of law enforcement uh, uh, known as catch and release. Um, And more about that in just a moment. So I believe that In a post-9-11 world, Texans and Americans want to know who is coming into our country and what the intentions are of those individuals. And they no longer believe that they are safe when our borders lack effective controls. And anybody, literally, and everybody who wants to come here, who can uh, muster together enough money to pay a coyote or human smuggler, can get here. And if, in fact, as... Testimony before my committee has revealed that uh, now even the drug uh, cartels are in the business of human smuggling. It's no longer a mom-and-pop organization so much, but literally organized crime syndicates who are engaged in whatever makes them money. And if it's smuggling illegal drugs, they'll do that. If it's smuggling weapons, they'll do that. If it's trafficking in persons, uh, they'll do that. But, of course, the next question is, well, does that mean they'll also smuggle in weapons of mass destruction across our poorest border? Does that mean they'll also smuggle in for the right price a member of al-Qaeda or a terrorist organization member? And the answer to that is yes, uh, they will for a price. So I've, I think this has really crystallized uh, American concerns about our immigration system and presented this, uh, this clash of uh, American values in a way that calls for our elected officials and leadership to act. But immigration is, uh, to me, one of the most fascinating issues uh, that we deal with in public policy. I've described it, I hope appropriately, as uh, sort of the parable of the blind men uh, describing an elephant. And to some, uh, it's an ear. Uh, To some, it's a tail. To some, it's a trunk. Um, In other words, depending on where you come from and your perspective, you'll describe this elephant of uh, the need for immigration reform in a little different fashion. And so we hear so many disparate and seemingly unconnected solutions that people offer when, in fact, uh, perhaps none of them as an individual matter represent a reasonable solution to the whole problem. So the question is, what do we do? What do we do? Well, the legislation that Senator Kyle and I have proposed is designed to deal with the border security issue and to solve that problem, and then to also deal with the economic aspect of the issue. And let me describe for you what we have in mind. Some have said that uh, we need to build a wall between the United States and Mexico, a 2,000-mile wall, I ask, well, how high would that wall be? Um, Some say, well, a 50-foot wall ought to do it. And and my response to that is, well, if we build a 50-foot wall, there will be a boom in the sale of 51-foot ladders. (laughs) Or there will be a boom in the sale of tunneling equipment so people can dig under that wall, as we've seen recently in Mexico. Or, as the House has said, we need a 700-foot wall, and I guess they figure no one will come around the ends of the wall. Um, But here again, I don't uh, disparage people's solutions, but I think it just demonstrates the need to think um, in some depth about what really represents a good solution. I don't think a 19th century solution to a 21st century problem is the best, best way to go. So what I support and what Senator Kyle supports is what we call a virtual wall. What that means is we would double the number of Border Patrol agents, going from roughly 10,000, now we have about 11,000, 11 and 12,000, to roughly double that amount. We would use technology that is being currently used in places, for example, on the Syrian border with Iraq to detect who is coming across that border that this technology that's not being deployed by the Department of Homeland Security, our civilian law enforcement agency, well, we ought to also employ uh, uh, some of the miracles of modern technology that we're using in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, unmanned aerial vehicles that are relatively inexpensive, that can uh, uh, linger over places for long periods of time, and uh, that can provide us a more complete and comprehensive picture of who is coming to the border and who is trying to come across, it's going to cost some money. But my position is that the federal government has for too long simply abdicated its responsibility completely to local and state governments. But with the growing border violence we see in places like Nuevo Laredo, with the incursions we've seen in places like Hudspeth County, Texas, uh, I think – Washington finally gets it and understands that this is a federal responsibility, which it is, by definition, being an international border. I don't favor blocking, um, creating a a barrier, unnecessary barriers, between the United States and Mexico, or the rest of the world for that matter, above and beyond what is necessary to determine who is coming into our country and why. And obviously we spent the last 11 years or so building uh, bridges and entering uh, into international agreements like the North American Free Trade Agreement with Mexico and Canada, because we recognize that those free trade agreements provide economic opportunities both to our domestic producers here as well as producers in those countries and creates markets that order to the benefit of all and which create jobs for an awful lot of Americans that we do not want to see uh, go away. So it's important to realize that the the benefits of legal uh, commerce and traffic across our borders as we try to address comprehensively the illegal traffic across our borders for the reasons I've I've mentioned. But we can't stop there. I believe that we also have to deal with uh, interior enforcement. And what I mean by that, for example, I recently had 16 border sheriffs come see me in Washington and say, uh, Well, Senator, we're more than happy to help federal law enforcement agencies when it comes to enforcing the law, but uh, we can't do it out of our own pocket. Uh, We need some help from the federal government. One of the amendments I was successful in getting adopted is an amendment in the Judiciary Committee that would reimburse local law enforcement and state law enforcement agencies who would volunteer to enter into Memorandum of Understanding that would uh, then reimburse them for their costs to train uh, their people in the uh, immigration laws to make sure they're, they're well-informed, as well as the equipment they would need in order to to do that. And I've talked to a number of uh, local law enforcement officials who said, you know, we, we want to help, but we're tired of calling uh, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement and told there's no agent to come pick up uh, someone. And, uh, in fact, there are no detention facilities for them, even if they were come to come and pick them up, which has led to this catch-and-release program that I mentioned a moment ago. But I don't think we can stop at the border. We can't stop at uh, interior enforcement. We need to deal with enforcement at the work site, live up to that failure that uh, I mentioned a while ago when it came to 1986 and the amnesty. Well, how do we do this in a way that is uh, easy to use, that would uh, employers would be encouraged Uh, to participate in and discourage uh, both document fraud and illegal hiring of people who are not authorized to work in the United States. Well, I I don't think it's rocket science. If I can go into a convenience store and uh, offer my debit card for a bag of chips and a Coca-Cola and uh, they can swipe it and it can authorize the purchase in a matter of seconds, I think we can figure this one out. But indeed, part of the complication uh, we have in terms of the jurisdictions and the, uh, the uh, in the Senate is that the Finance Committee now has jurisdiction over these issues because it affects Social Security and uh, and taxation laws, which are outside of the purview of the Judiciary Committee. But that's kind of in the weeds for some of the immigration lawyers here and people who follow those issues closely. But suffice it to say, we've got to come up with a document that, that is easy to use and which doesn't put the pressure on employers to essentially be an FBI agent and conduct an independent investigation into whether the Social Security card or the driver's license or the passport that's produced is indeed authentic. And we can do this, and and I believe we must do it in order to deal with enforcement across the board. This layered enforcement, starting at the border, going to the interior, and then to the workplace, I believe are absolutely critical. Well, then what do we do with the fact that we uh, we know that American many sectors of the American uh, uh, economy need additional workers that are not being supplied for one reason or another uh, by American citizens? I believe part of resolving this issue requires uh, some form of a temporary worker program. Some have called it more generically a guest worker program. I believe it We ought to call it a temporary worker program because I believe it ought to be premised upon the principle of work and return, not work and stay. We have other ways for people who want to come to the United States legally uh, to do so and to stay to become American citizens, although I think we've been unrealistic about the caps and the uh, delays that administratively we put on people to get here, particularly when it comes to family unification issues. And so people say, why, sh- why should I wait eight or ten years to come legally when I can just make a quick trip across the border and rejoin my loved one uh, in the United States? So we have to deal deal with those issues as well. But the reason why I believe this principle of work and return is so important is because no country, no country, the United States included, can sustain a permanent exodus of their young uh, an energetic workforce from their country and what is happening to the united to mexico and central america and other countries is that they have struggling economies that are unable to provide sufficient opportunities for their own citizens and so what do they do well they do what you and i assuming we had the courage would do and that is whatever it takes to provide for our families And so they come to this country illegally to work. Well, what I believe we need to do is, at the same time we address the needs of the United States economy and the workforce by creating a circular flow of immigration into the country for a while to work and then returning, while at the same time we enforce the laws at the border, in the interior, and at the workplace, what we do is we encourage people who come here for a time to work to return to their country of origin with the savings and the skills that they've acquired working in the United States to build a home, to start a small business, to create that seed corn uh, that's necessary for economies like Mexico and Central America and other countries so they can generate opportunities there, which will in turn take pressure off of our borders. But I also believe that by creating a, a legal mechanism for people to work on a temporary basis in the United States will give our law enforcement officials a better opportunity to enforce our laws, because no longer will they be uh, spread so thin worried about people who are coming here to work and who come forward, whose backgrounds are checked. We know they're not criminals. We know they're not terrorists. Uh, But that will allow our law enforcement agencies to focus on the bad guys, and there are plenty of them out there who want to take advantage of our broken immigration system uh, and exploit that to come here uh, to do harm to the American people. Finally, let me just say, and then I'll be glad to open up the floor to to any questions you may have, just to make uh, this thing even more complicated than it already is, and it's hard to think of anything more complicated, is um, what do we do about the people who are already here? And we, uh, the Congressional Research Service, estimates that there's some 10 or 11 million people who've come here uh, through not legal means and who are living among our midst. Um, Some people, I think, are in denial about uh, that. Some people wonder, well, what kind of jobs are these people performing? And the Congressional Research Service advises us that about 6 million of those, 10 million or so, are in the workforce in America. But I just encourage you to look around, if you haven't already, uh, at who is here probably performing jobs that uh, are beneficial uh, to our economy and make our lives easier, uh, but they happen to be here in violation of our laws. And we have to, I believe, as part of comprehensive immigration reform, identify who is here and make sure they're not here for uh, bad reasons, for bad purposes, and for those who want to come forward and find a way to, uh, to live in compliance with our laws, to pay taxes, that we need to find a way for them to do so. But, again, amnesty is not the answer. I believe that if we were merely to say, to wave a magic wand and say, you were here illegally a moment ago and now you're here legally, we would find the same phenomenon we've seen occur over the last 20 years, occur perhaps many times over. There were about 3 million who got the benefit of the amnesty in 1986, and as I mentioned, there are 10 to 11 million people living here illegally now. I believe another amnesty, just uh, waving that magic wand and saying, never mind uh, that you came here, your very first act upon entering this country was to break the law, would send a bad message and would be, in essence, a magnet for further illegal immigration. But this is the hardest issue we have to address here again, because of that clash in American values, recognizing the reasons why people have come, but also recognizing that America cannot welcome anyone and everybody who wants to come here from around the world. We simply uh, cannot, as a practical matter. Senator Kyle and I have proposed what we think is a, a reasonable uh, way to deal with this. That uh, some have criticized, but I, I will tell you what it is and. I will tell you, if you have a better idea, I would be glad to hear it, uh, That is not amnesty. What we propose is it will take a certain period of time for those 10 million or so people to be administratively addressed if they were to come forward. Uh, obviously, we'd need to expand the size of the Department of Homeland Security and, and uh, improve our databases and, and the uh, processes by which we would, uh, we would address those people. But what we have said is if you come forward and identify yourself, we will give you up to five years, up to five years to get your affairs in order. And if you, are, if you are a, came here illegally and you have American citizen children, or if you have a uh, perhaps uh, or have been in our workforce for a long period of time, you may need longer than the, some person who is, uh, but no longer than five years, than the individual, say a young man who's come here in the last three months. And works and goes back and forth across the border. But we will give you up to the five-year maximum if you come forward now. And you can continue to work and travel, but at the end of the period of time, no longer than five years, you will have to leave the United States. If you want to come back, then you can apply while you're still here to, to participate in a temporary worker program or for a legal permanent residency. But the only way you can get that ticket back is to exit the country, having an appointment with the consulate or some other government official, and then you can return to the United States in a legal capacity. Some have said, as I indicated, that that is a a difficult uh, program. How are we going to get people to comply with that requirement? I will tell you that while we all have our opinions about whether it's workable or not, Number one, it's not amnesty, so I think it has some hope of being embraced by both bodies, the Senate and the House, which is going to be the ultimate test of uh, whether we're going to come up with a, a, a good outcome. Um, but number two, the Pew Hispanic Center, and you can check this on their website, conducted a survey of 5,000 applicants for the matricular consular card, uh, and it's a good bet that... Uh, almost all, uh, maybe all of those 5,000 people who responded to that survey, said that they would be willing to come forward and participate in a worker program if at the, even if at the end of that period of time they had to return to their country of origin. Seventy-one percent of those 5000 persons surveyed said they would participate. So I think uh, there are many benefits that the population that's currently here living in the shadow sees, To working within a legal system, even if ultimately it means that they would have to return to their country of origin, and um, in recognition of the fact that they would be eligible uh, to return to the United States at some point through some other legal mechanism. So I appreciate your hanging in there with me as I've explained uh, in as comprehensive a fashion as I know how both the challenge we have before us and some of the solutions that are out there. Uh, Thank you for your interest in the program, and uh, I would be more than happy to respond to any questions as time permits. Thank you, sir.
1: Yes,
0: sir.
3: Well, uh, Barkat raises the issue of where, where one uh, spouse or family member has come to the United States and complied with the laws completely. Uh, the delay in family unification is sometimes three, four, five, I know in some instances, horror stories of eight to ten years. Um, I think it represents a failure of our system uh, to reflect reality, and the reality is that family members are going to want to be together, and if we don't provide a legal mechanism for them to do so, then uh, many will resort to coming here in violation of our immigration laws. So that is one of those things that I think uh, is should not be particularly controversial. If our laws say one of members of the family uh, can come, then we ought to provide a way for families to, to be together um, in a way that uh, complies with the law. So I think... Uh, improving our processing time, and, and I hope as part of this uh, overall package, uh, we will address that issue head on. What does your research group say about the
2: productivity of the illegal human and the human
3: The productivity? Um, all I know is uh, what you know, and uh, it's anecdotal. Uh, because there is, because these are individuals who are here, uh, they're in violation of the law, they're not eager to comply with uh, ser- researchers or others or uh, to identify themselves in that capacity. But I think it runs the, runs the gamut. I mean, I think you have some people who are here working at uh, entry-level, low-wage jobs. Uh, you have some who become entrepreneurs in their own right and start businesses, whether restaurants or they work on construction sites or do the whole uh, gamut of jobs that are available in our, uh, in our uh, economy. Um, right now we have such a contradiction in government policies, including sanctuary policies in many cities, that, that make it uh, possible for them to work and to basically participate in the benefits of our economy as if they were here legally because there is no, there aren't enough enforcement agents and our laws are simply uh, have too many gaps in it to see those people who are currently here illegally to see the law enforced, and they know it. And so they find the natural uh, uh, opportunities they may have to participate at whatever level their ambition and their talents take them to. I know I've read some stories. In the New York Times and Los Angeles Times and other about uh, immigrants coming here and basically creating, a, becoming what well, I'm pretty wealthy uh, as a result of their own initiative and uh, entrepreneurship. But we need to make sure, I think, at any, in any event, that whatever the solution is, that these immigrants also bear part of the financial responsibility that's being placed on local hospital districts and local school districts because to me that is one of the two mandates the federal government makes uh, that uh, the federal government does not pay for, and we need to make sure that it's part of the solution that the immigrants bear and perhaps their employers bear part of the financial responsibility to fill those gaps as well. Well, I, I'm not aware of that happening, but I am um, I hear what you're saying, and if that's happening, that's totally unacceptable. Um, that's part of the problem when we have a labor supply that is essentially a black market uh, labor supply that perhaps even drives down wages for American citizens who would be willing and interested in performing those same type of jobs. But if in fact that's happening, that's uh, unacceptable, and uh, we need to Investigated and to prosecute those violations.
1: In the back corner, Dick behind you. Dick, you'll be next. Uh, what are we trying to do about the H-1B
3: visa quota? Well, the uh, H-1B, uh, H-1B visa quota is um, is going to be part of the overall solution. Um I know that there are different segments of the economy in the ag industry, for example, that feel like they need special solutions to the problem, Um, and I'm sure those will come up in the form of amendments during the debate. The proposal that Senator Kyle and I have made does not distinguish between uh, would basically create a new category of temporary worker that would be available to anyone who wants to come to the United States and work regardless of what capacity or what type of job they would want to perform. Rather than have the government dictate what kinds of jobs you could perform, it would be based upon an attestation that there is no American uh, worker who is available to fill that job and uh, based on the principle of a willing employer and a willing worker. Um, We can get back to you with some more details about some of the specific proposals out there, but I would favor a broader program rather than trying to uh, resurrect some of the some of the terribly uh, flawed uh, current uh, programs.
2: Dick? Uh
0: friends were key uh great really ambassador now
3: 270 Saudi students will be coming to Texas. Uh, how many will be coming to the United States and when will that
1: be implemented? Do you know? How many Saudi students are coming to the United States? Two hundred are coming to Texas and how many to the United States.
3: I don't know the answer to that question, it's specifically in response to your question, but I will tell you that I hear a lot from uh, universities in the United States that, that we have made it too hard uh, for students to come study here in the United States, and I'm very sensitive to those concerns because, here again, I think we have been the net beneficiary of um, those students coming here and studying in our universities on two counts. Number one is the, smartest, the best and the brightest tend to come, And uh, if they uh, want to and there's an opportunity, many of them stay and contribute at very high levels to the United States. And the second part of that is even if they go home, they become become very knowledgeable about America. They're less likely to believe the propaganda uh, and the lies uh, propagated by uh, interest groups, uh, perhaps uh, who are anti-American, and they become uh, effective ambassadors for our country. But I know it's been particularly difficult when you're talking about countries like Saudi Arabia and some of the countries in the Middle East. Obviously, the the 19 hijackers who came to this country and who perpetrated the the crimes of uh, September the 11th uh, came here initially legally, but then overstayed. Um, So that remains a concern, and uh, I'm confident we are not yet where we need to be on that. So perhaps our... our, uh, Immigration officials err in in the side of excluding people, and we just need to make better distinctions based upon the facts and rather than categorize uh, people broadly in a way that really uh, is uh, not fair.
1: Senator, I might just take a second. Pat Patterson, our chairman, Pat, if you'd raise your hand, everybody, just came back from the Jeddah Economic Forum, and at the same time I was in Tunis, Tunisia, on a delegation for the World Affairs Council, and both of us ran into so many people at the ministerial level who were in their 40s, who had studied in the United States either with AFS at high school or in college, and yet now their children are unable to come here because mm-hmm. of the strict requirements. So it's really something that we heard resonated throughout Saudi Arabia and, and
0: Tunisia. Have- You'll have to talk up that.
3: I would just I would just say, uh, Pat, there's um, my office uh, here in Dallas. Um, when you have exceptional circumstances like that that you think uh, would justify some intervention from my office to see if we can uh, cut through some of that nonsense, um, then we're glad to do that. If you'll just we have a, our Dallas uh, office here handles constituent casework, including with immigration. And we'll we'll get to the bottom of it. We may not be able to solve the problem, but we'll sure uh, give it our best.
1: We have several more questions. Let's right over here.
0: Many of us believe that the United States government has got a credibility problem based on its uh, prior circumstance with amnesty and believe that enforcement is at the heart of whatever you do. Uh, some type of identification,
2: whereby we can identify those who are really illegal. You hate to suggest that you want to deprive somebody else of the same opportunity
3: that your uh, progenitors said. So how do, you address, how do you address that issue uh, in, your, in your program? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a tough issue, and, um, but I will just say what we propose is um, that we would give people who qualify under a temporary worker program or those... And I should say, those who would be here in the process of deciding whether they're going to exit the country permanently or come back in a temporary worker program or as legal permanent resident, a document that would not be easy to uh, to counterfeit, and perhaps in connection with biometric identifiers, make sure that they are actually the authorized holder of that card. Uh, the challenge we have is: what if someone shows up at a work site and says, "I'm not a, I'm not here, I'm not an alien, I'm an American." and gives you a Social Security card or a driver's license, the like, well, we're going to have to come up with some means to also uh, verify that. Uh, Of course, that raises the hairs on the back of people's neck, uh, and they think, well, are you talking about a national identity card? And uh, it makes all of us very nervous, and I think we have to walk very carefully in trying to address that issue, but we are going to try to address it in the context of this legislation.
1: Ray, and then a question up here. And Ray, if you'd be real brief, and then, sir, if I could ask you to ask your question, Richard, and the Senator will take both questions sure. together. Uh, what do you
0: think that you, of course, working the 14th Amendment might be interpreted as more legal residence only, and what is your personal view on potential driving that way? Richard,
1: Richard, you want to answer oh, a question?
0: Senator, there? uh, there's a price tag, obviously. Can you give us an idea of what, that, what range that might be and, wh- and whether there might be a return?
3: Well, on the uh, so-called anchor babies or children of illegal aliens who are born here, uh, as you know, Texas had a law that said that uh, they could not be educated free of charge in our public schools, and that law was struck down by the United States Supreme Court as a violation of the 14th Amendment. So uh, this is a constitutional issue now that uh, would defy a, a statutory change, Um, And uh, the only way that it will change is if there's a constitutional amendment passed. Uh, It is an enormously uh, sensitive issue because, um, on one hand, uh, we don't want people to uh, uh, benefit from their illegal activity, but my own view is children of illegal immigrants uh, have no choice, and uh, if they're going to be here in the United States, I would rather have them educated and I'd rather have them productive rather than uneducated and dependent. Um, but that. Pardon me? I didn't. Citizens? Citizens? Well, I think, you know, that's one of the. Uh, there have been num- numerous proposals, including the DREAM Act that you're probably familiar with. Um, my thought is that, uh, as, as somebody we were talking around the table, one of the things uh, I guess Tom Friedman is that who suggested he said after, uh, when when the kids come here and study, and if they're uh, smart and uh, provide uh, either science, technology, engineering, or math uh, talent that uh, we need in this country, we ought to staple a green card to their graduation uh, <laughs> diploma, um, and that's uh, that's. Uh, I'm not endorsing that, but that's one school of thought. On the cost, uh, it's going to be expensive. Um, we have, but here again, this is part of the credibility gap that I think the federal government has. If we say we're going to pass these laws and create this uh, mechanism that is going to address this problem, then we're going to have to create uh, the personnel and the assets, the technology, to do- deal with it. And I think it's going to be in the billions of dollars. Uh, in the most recent budget resolution, we passed uh, $6 billion in additional funding for border security, uh, I think is a demonstration of the, of the Senate's commitment uh, to, um, to meet that challenge. But we're going to have to not only provide additional capability when it comes to technology and personnel, we're going to have to clean up a lot of the broken Uh, system we have now where there are unreasonable delays in administering legal immigration. I think what we ought to be for is legal immigration. We ought to be against illegal immigration, but part we we shouldn't sort of shoot ourselves in the foot, I think, by some of the unrealistic uh, uh, both administrative and uh, provisions or uh, accommodations now as well as some of the unrealistically low caps on legal immigration. So I think that's why we need to deal with it comprehensively.
1: And I think
3: that'll be the last one. Thank you. Thank you very
1: much, sir. <laughs> Senator, you may have only been there three years, but you're certainly making a big, a big imprint, and we're very appreciative. Sandy, thank you very much for being with us today. Sandy, would you please stand up so everyone could recognize you? Thank you.